Welcome back to part three, the concluding part in the concluding programme. Well, as we have heard, a Coast Watch report was also submitted on the episode with U-260 and the coming ashore of 11 German sailors. Obviously, the lightkeepers on duty at the Galley Head Lighthouse did likewise, and being the head keeper, it would be correct to assume that a report was also submitted by Sand Lanville. But according to Mary McCarthy, her father's logbooks were always locked away, and she has been unable to lay her hands on them since. She says that not much was spoken about it afterwards. It was just something that happened during wartime, and life went on. I'd love to get access to that and read what he had written. And he wrote mostly in what's called indelible pencil, which was a kind of a purpley thing because you minded your pen and your ink. Now, whether he wrote in ink to send it off up in another form, I don't know, or what became of those kind of log books because they were locked in a cupboard. And we kind of spoke about it when we came home from school, but it was just an episode and we... Then we wondered. And soon after that, the war was all over. And there was a feeling, I don't know how we knew the war was over or who said it was. There was kind of a feeling of relief. Now, how much the war affected people living where we lived at the Galley Head, farming life was very, very hard, I used to think. And I remember seeing a farmer from the back window of the house we lived in. I remember seeing a man, what was called topping beet. And the beet was like, the way we looked at it, like the crop was set and it was pulled out of the ground, it was in little heaps in the field. And then you stood by the heap and knocked the leaves off the top of the big, big root. And the roots, of course, are eaten by the cattle. But he stood in the most awful weather, you could imagine, just topping, topping, topping. I thought, dreadful life. Now, I have things here, that's them. They gave us chocolate. There was chocolate in that, a white chocolate. Can't open it. And they gave it's my father a, cigarette tobacco. It's a little wrong tin, little wrong. like a tobacco and, tin. No, this was the chocolate. I yeah. don't have the tin. This is from cigarette uh, tobacco for cigarettes, which my father liked. Terrible strong smelling stuff. And I have that left over. Now, Joe, the, the other keeper, the system keeper, he had the dinghy thing, the rubber thing. And where they had put that, of course, I don't know, probably one of the inlets. Because out at the galley head, it's all little, what they call a coos yeah. or a file or one of these Irish names. He got that because he used to pad it about in one of the places where we used to go to swim. And there's a slip there because once upon a time, supplies were brought to the lighthouse. Oil, paraffin oil, were brought in one of their ships and there was a slip and a crane and all the sort of thing and then it kind of all faded away and we knew no more about it as was stated earlier a garda and a garda superintendent also arrived at the galley head and so it is also correct to assume that a report was submitted by the superintendent jim crowley is a former crew member and honorary secretary of court mcsherry lifeboat and jim has been able to unearth a copy of the superintendent's report further to and in confirmation of telephone communications of the 13th incident i beg the report that at 5.45am on the 13th instant I received a report through the Gardaí at Roscavery that 11 Germans had landed from a raft in the vicinity of Galley Head Lighthouse. Having given the necessary instructions to mobilise sufficient assistance, I reported the matter to the military at Cork and proceeded immediately to Galley Head, where I arrived at about 6.50am. I saw 11 Germans there within the precincts of the lighthouse. One was a lieutenant, another was a doctor and nine were ratings. I ascertained and saw that they had landed from a raft just west of the lighthouse. None of the Germans were able to speak English, but through the medium of French, I was able to ascertain that they were members of a submarine crew, which vessels had been sunk between 40 and 50 miles west of the Galley Head on the evening of Sunday the 12th. 
I ascertained that the entire crew had abandoned the submarine and that the remaining 37 were still at sea on wraps. Arrangements were made for the lynching of the Corp McSherry lifeboat to search for the remaining survivors and in addition the military authorities dispatched a motor torpedo boat from Cork. The military from Cork arrived at the galley head at about 10am and I handed over the party of Germans and their property and with them I proceeded to Roscarbury where final arrangements were made to transfer the prisoners to Cork. About this time, a further message was received from the Galleyhead Lighthouse that the Cormacshire lifeboat had picked up and rescued 37 other Germans from Raps and that they were proceeding to Cormacshire to land. I proceeded to Cormacshire and awaited the arrival of the lifeboat which landed the survivors at about 1 o'clock. Arrangements were made through the Shipwrecked Mariners Association at Cormacshire to provide the survivors with food, refreshments and clothes. The military who had been at Roscarbury arrived and took charge of this party also which consisted of the commander, one senior officer, two junior officers, four NCOs and 29 ratings. They had no arms or ammunition in their possession and the party were transferred to Cork by the military at about 3pm. I am satisfied that 48 was the total crew of the submarine and that there are no survivors left unaccounted for. None of the crew were injured but three or four were more or less exhausted. This was written by um, W. Brazil. Dear Mid O'Mahony is a former cox of Court McSherry lifeboat and presently one of three DLAs, Deputy Launching Authorities. He says that Court McSherry did experience a lot of the effects of World War II here, but doesn't remember much talk about U-260 or its crew. The only thing I often heard my mother saying that um, when the crew were landed, when the crew the submarine were landed at the pier in Court McSherry, she went down with her camera to take a photograph. And she wasn't long on the pier at all when the customs men got onto her. And he said, put away that camera quick before you're arrested. <laughs> but we always thought that we had a photograph of the crew at home, amongst our family photographs, you see. But then when we were doing the history of Cotman Shirley there a few years ago, history of the village, when we kind of went through the photographs in detail, we found out that they were actually the crew of another ship that was landed by the lifeboat in Cotman Shirley. They were the crew of the, the oil tanker, the British influence. Now, she was torpedoed in 1939, about 250 miles after Fastnet. She had a crew of 42, and they were allowed to go get off into the lifeboats before the ship was torpedoed. Then another oil tanker, Norwegian oil tanker, the Ida Blake, which was outbound to the States, she picked up the British inference crew from the lifeboats and headed back towards um, the old Hedekin sail, really. And the Khamishari lifeboat rendezvoused with her and landed them. In Khamishari, and that was on the 15th of September 1939. And funny enough, the following day, Khamishari lifeboat landed a crew of another ship, another oil tanker, the, the Cheyenne, which was torpedoed 200 miles after Fastnet, and they landed that crew in Baltimore because that was the closest point they came to mm-hmm. on their way back. So there was a lot of activity, wartime activity going on out there. Yeah, there was really, John, yeah. Because the other big thing here too was um, the local man here from another one. He was the Irish ambassador to um, in Second World War to Portugal and all that like so he he was following everything very closely like. Back on the cliffside at the galley head, slightly west of the lighthouse, Pacho Harrington, Gerald Butler and I looked down at where the eleven German sailors came ashore, and we discussed the possible theories for scuttling the submarine. There seems to be general agreement with the theory put forward earlier on the programme by diver Brendan Cahill. Well, this probably hit the rock or the mine because yeah. apparently they have the fort of it with the bow was damaged in here. So that was either the submarine or hit the rock in here. But according to the book on here, 
they were going to go floating or in, on the surface back, which was to a chance. They'd probably be sunk with British warship or something, or a plane or something. Yeah. So they got orders to Scotland then. Yeah, and more than likely, as we've mentioned a couple of times, if it was a mine, that the torpedoes would have exploded and the ammunition on board would have exploded with it. It leaves a lot of um, truth in what Brendan is saying, that uh, it most likely did strike the rock. It, it very much looks like it. Colin Barnes was uh, on, on his thing said that there was a swordfish aircraft dropped uh, two bombs on it and they claimed a hit now um, I suppose you'll get all of these things being said but um, to me anyway look thinking about it and looking at it and one thing and another um, I would think Brendan is right it did hit the rock yeah because he, he makes the point as well that between the rock and where the submarine lies there's a line of debris which would suggest that when it hit the rock there was pieces or fragments of it falling off before it actually came to rest on the seafloor. Yeah, and that's the evidence, isn't it? Uh, that tells a, a story, it clears things up a bit, you know. And I mean, the speculation anyway of what she was carrying, if there was a, an explosion, oh God, you, the, the submarine would have been just blown to smithereens. As we came to completing this programme, I got a call from Jim Crowley in Court McSherry. Jim is a former crew member and on sec of the lifeboat in the village and has featured earlier in the programme. Jim has unearthed a very interesting report on a conversation between an interpreter and two members of the crew of U-260. This was an interview conducted on the 13th and 14th of March 1945 in Collins Barracks in Cork with First Officer Nagel and Second Lieutenant Kunz. The following day, interviews were also conducted with other members of the crew. This is the interpreter's report, read here by Jim Crowley. Kuntz is an intelligent, vacacious man of about 22. He is more the artistic type than military. He speaks freely and easily, becomes enthusiastic and carried away by his own eloquence. Nagel is quite dogged and politically a sound party man. On this occasion he spoke quite a lot, but it seemed that he only did so in order to keep Kuntz quiet. The talk was of politics and the war generally. They had nothing to say on the subject of the accident. We spoke for a long time on the subject of conditions in Germany, and while they agreed on the devastating effects of continuing, they were sure that the food situation was good. Both had plenty of experience of life recently, for after every trip, U-boat crews got about six weeks' leave. Morale was 100%, they said, and cited the burning enthusiasm of children of school age who were performing valiant duties on all fronts. Both from these officers and from the NCOs with whom I later spoke, I heard with varying degrees of accuracy a tale of a Hitler youth of 14 who with a bazooka type of instrument knocked out 9 tanks in 6 minutes and or 16 tanks in 25 minutes in East Prussia. It was a well-known story over the German wireless 6 weeks ago. While the picture of life at home which both officers and NCOs built up was similar, the conclusions were different. NCOs said, we'll throw them back again as we did before. But the officer said, well anyway, England has lost the war too. I didn't press them to make any unqualified statement that they had lost the war, but it was obvious they were quite convinced of it. They asked insistently why England couldn't see that she was ruined anyway, and Nagel got very angry and put it all down to the hypnotic effect of English propaganda. Russia was of course a constantly recurring theme. Kuntz felt it especially because his home in Serbia had been overrun. They had nothing new to add to the usual German theme of the breakdown of civilizations in Europe through the deprivations of the Mongol but they heavily stressed one point that Russia would never have recovered if America had not supplied her with enormous quantities of war material. Russian arms, they said, were rotten, badly finished and inaccurate, while every German article was a work of art. 
The recurring theme of the interview portrayed the crew's refusal to talk about the objective of the submarine's patrol or why it was scuttled. Both Nagel and Kunz knew little about Ireland except for once seeing a film about the War of Independence. On the following morning, I visited Seaman First Class Janoschik in hospital. He had a slight chill but was quite bright. Like all the others, he was delighted with the quality of the reception in Ireland and said it was quite obvious that the country was very friendly with Germany. He spoke freely on general subjects as the officers had done, but was absolutely firm in his refusal to say a thing on the subject of the mission of the U-boat or how the accident happened. He was sure that Germany would push back the invading armies, spoke with confidence of the hundreds of U-boats which were to be seen back at base and had no appearance of doubt as to the outcome of the war. He is 20 years old and has served for four years, some part of that time in the tropics and the Mediterranean. Seaman Dorr had a sore ear and I stayed with him in the hospital to interpret it for him. He is 22 and has had four years service. He is rather simple and information could be got out of him but much of it would be useless. He thought, for example, that he had landed in Northern Ireland but I had to leave Cork the following day. All are regulars, while they are not the big, brawny type of German which we consider to be typical. They are mentally alert and tough and are convinced national socialists as well as being 100% behind their government in all matters. I was speaking in all six hours to these men, and though I only talked at length to four of them, I formed the opinion they were undoubtedly the pick of the German forces. My thanks to Jim Crowley and to Dan, who read a section of the Coastwatch report earlier. In both programmes, we've put forward three theories for the scuttling of U-260. The weight of evidence would suggest the theory suggested by Brendan Cahill, that U-260 hit the 78 rock south of Glandore and was scuttled as a result. We can also only surmise that the submarine was on a covert operation. Why, for instance, is there no record of sunken ships under Klaus Becker's command? And yet, at the age of 25, he has already been decorated on five occasions. What had he achieved to receive such decorations? Why has his logbook been resealed, not to be reopened until the year 2045? And yet, in previous programmes, we had easy access to the logbook of Walter Schwieger, the submarine captain whose crew sunk the Lusitania during World War I. Why was there a doctor on board U-260? And why did Klaus Becker meet with Grand Admiral Donitz before he sailed his submarine out of Christian Sand and eventually towards the West Cork coast? My sincere thanks to everybody who took part, a special word of thanks to Gerald Butler and to Betty Hennessy and Plagoc, whose original suggestion to interview Mary McCarthy mushroomed into two extensive programmes. Well, thanks to you for joining us. Join us again on Sunday evening next at 7. But until then, for myself, John Green, have a good week and goodbye for now.